Hi everyone, this is Walter Parks. You're listening to Talking Blues. Where, where are you at this point? Are you in St. Louis? Is that where you are? Yeah, I'm in St. Louis. I, I moved, uh, I, I spent the greater part of my adult life in the New York City area, having moved there from Northeast Florida. I always wanted to be in New York. It was just the, the only place that uh, was, it was the place where the best music that, that I was interested in was coming out of. At the time, it was jazz. So I moved there when, when I was a young man. And, um, uh, and I married a St. Louis girl who in New York City, and we were working for record labels. And uh, anyway, when the COVID hit, we came back to St. Louis to be with her family, you know, and to help her family out. So that's where we are. I've, I've been coming to St. Louis for years. And, uh, you know, I, it's a great music town. I'm kind of happy I live here. Um, let me go the, to the beginning. I know that you started playing music early. You, I know you started playing the viola in grade yeah. six, I believe. Tell yeah. me when you started to connect with music. When did music become more than just school activity? When, when did you get passionate about music? I think I, I got passionate about music when I was playing and rehearsing my viola scores in my room. My my room, I had a private moment. It was, I, I think it was, Mako, I think it was, it must be similar to the way people feel when they're praying or in church or whatever, whatever the religious spiritual connection is that all of us have, you know, in those moments. I just, I felt that, um, that, that the viola brought me to whatever creative source is in this world, in this universe. That was as close as I'd ever gotten to it. And I, I, I understood aspects of grace. I understand stood aspects of delivery. And what I mean by that is you can do what somebody tells you to do, right? I mean, if somebody says, take out the trash, you can just go take out the trash. When you're, when you're learning to play music as a, as, a, as, a, as a young student, you see a note on the printed page and you play that note. And then you realize, hmm, I'm in control of how that note is played. I, there's infinite ways of playing that note. And that relationship to the command for me to do something, that relationship was empowering because I realized I had all those choices to deliver. It was an issue of grace and how I did a thing that provided me with a sense of personal independence and I did all of that, and I came to all of that through the arts, just in that little room when I was a kid in sixth grade. And so it was a place that I wanted to return to. I'm talking about metaphorically, you know, in the rehearsal space. And so now, even, even today, I'm, I'm age 62 at this point, and you and I just discussed dealing with technological issues, trying to get your phone turned off. And, and I said, Mako, I measure all of this stuff by how much time it takes me away from my guitar. So, you know, if, if, uh, and, and for instance, the time that we're spending right now in a certain instance, instance, 
the time that I'm spending talking to you right now is not really taking me away from my guitar. Because if people hear this interview and they, they, they listen to it and it empowers them, either from your questions or my answers, then they're going to want to see me play and hear me play. And therefore, I'm going to get more time to play the guitar and sing <laughs> and connect with people. So that's why I'm, I, I, love, I love talking with folks like you who are music supporters and, and connoisseurs of the art. Thank you. So th thank you. Um, the music, the, the guitar came to you very quickly after the viola. Right. Did, did playing music come easy to you? I mean, having that feeling and, and understanding how um, you can control the notes or whatever. I mean, to realize that very early is something, I think, special, because I don't know how good of a violist you were. But right. um, did the guitar come easy to you as well? Marco, the guitar did not come easy to me, nor did the viola come easy to me. I worked really, really hard at it. But what did come easy to me was, again, the artistic understanding, the artistic relationship, the concept of art and the concept of creativity and the personal power it afforded me. So, you know, I would see other musicians my age or I could see famous musicians of the day like Jimi Hendrix and they seemed to play so effortlessly. And I kind of... Um, I kind of was mystified by that. And as I've gotten older and gone through life and learned to play better and gotten more experienced, I realized that that's part of the smoke and mirrors of entertaining. When somebody's up there playing and it looks so easy, uh, a perfect example, and, and one, of the, one of the players who makes it two players that come to mind that make it look so easy are going to be total extreme opposites. One is Yo-Yo Ma, for instance. He just plays a cello suite, and it just looks like it just falls out of him. The other, taking to the other extreme, is Billy Gibbons, uh, plays guitar for ZZ Top. Right. When he plays, I mean, it looks like he's hardly playing at all, but there's this huge sound that comes out of the guitar. He makes it look so easy, but I know good and well that in both of those cases... Those, those gentlemen spent hours and hours and hours before they ever took the stage. And um, so that's, that's part of the, um, I think that's part of the allure of it all, though. They, and I think that's why the general public really loves to go see and hear musicians of that caliber. Because they make it look so easy, it makes you think as the listener or the viewer... Hey, maybe I can do that, you know? <laughs> maybe I can feel that power, too. And when I go to see Yo-Yo Ma in Carnegie Hall, you know, it, it, it's, it's like I want to sign up for that. I want to sign... I mean, I'm talking metaphorically here. I want to go, hey, I want to I have that relationship that he has to Bach Cello Suite number one through six. I want to have that relationship. Maybe I can get on board. And uh, so it, it's the facility of it. And but that brings me to something really, really important that, you know, I'm not answering a question here, but I think one of the great mysteries of art is that the best art taps into that place, that creative place, that that universal inspiration. And 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 then it comes out in whatever our medium is. Maybe for Ansel Adams it was photography. And, you know, maybe 
maybe for uh, you know a, a Barishnikov or something. It was dance, but in and and in in Billy Gibbons's case, it was the uh, you know Gibson Les Paul 1959. So you know how whatever the tool is, if you're right in that zone. It will flow out of you, and I would I would venture to say that is as spiritual as I can get when I can get in that zone. I wonder. It's interesting because you, you reference Yo-Yo Ma, who's a great classical player. You started, I presume, playing classical music, um, and but you've gone all over the place. Um, I know that you studied jazz very seriously, and I know you yes. wanted to go to New York and um, follow your dream of playing jazz. But you've done so many other types of music, Americana music, blues. Um, Tell me about that journey and finding yourself in all these different genres of music. Or do you not look at it as different genres of music? Do you look at it as music and it's everything is the same? Well, it's that's an excellent question. I do look at music uh, compartmentally. Uh, A lot of musicians don't, but I, I guess it's just because I feel like I would be in denial to say that all music is the same. All music is not the same. All people who make the music of, of the world's music is not the, are not the same. I mean, it's just that that would be an absurdity. But what what I have learned, um, you know, Mako, the the more I've done this and the more I've been in the music pursuit, so to speak, I do realize that all the diff, different cultures and way of ways of approaching music have different means of getting to the same place. You could have, and you know, I'm, I'm really studying a lot of American black spiritual music right now, for instance, and I study the Hammond B3 players and their way of getting from the, you know, the one to the four chord to the five chord, maybe down to the minor sixth is very different than, than the white, Fender Telecaster musician who plays country music in Nashville, but they get to the same destination and they're trying to solve the same purpose. Uh, the The voyage, the way they, the path they take and the roads they take, metaphorically, I mean, are different, but their destinations are kind of the same. And um, so, in other words, does Yo-Yo Ma endeavor to make us happy at a certain moment or pensive? Or, or does he want to give us a sense of resignation? Well, that sense of resignation can also be conveyed in spiritual music. You know, you know uh, when people say, Precious Lord, I am weak, I am tired, I am worn, take my hand. Precious Lord, and lead me on. So there's a, there's a, there's a feeling of that resignation and saying I can't figure it out for myself. And I think if you listen to great classical music, you can feel that re- resignation as well. At times, you can feel the uplift as well. And it's 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 all there. So there are different categories of music that I don't think can be denied. But uh, yes, I go all over the map sonically. I started playing classical music through the viola when I was a kid. And here I am now playing 
black American spiritual music or a music that's in, influenced by the black American spirituals. But I also play, um, you know, I, I play, I do go back to classical music occasionally. I, I just recently played with a, uh, supported a ballet dancer, for, for instance, at a festival in St. Louis, playing something from Purcell from, from the 1600s. So <laughs> I go all over the place, and it's, uh, it's a wonderful journey. And when you do, do you approach it differently based on the different genres, whether you're singing a spiritual or you're doing a holler or if you're playing jazz guitar? Is it, is it the same musicians who's motivated by the music or, um, or do you approach making those different genres differently? I, I don't see that. That is a very, very interesting question. I do not approach the different genres of music that I play differently. If I'm playing a classical piece from the 1600s, or if I'm playing a version, a blues version of Mavis Staples, uh, Keep My Eyes on the Prize or something, you know, the, the approach is the same. I have to be as authentic and put myself in the shoes of those composers to the extent that I can. And if I can't put myself in the shoes of those composers who wrote that music and the echoes of the feelings and the sentiment of those music, of that music still exists, if I can't realize those echoes that still exist in that music, then I'm being disloyal to that music. So that's the imperative for me. Um, if I'm, you know, is I have to try to embody that feeling. And in a certain way, Mako, it's a little bit like acting, you know? I mean, acting, if an actor is really doing his or her job, they embody that role. It used to be I didn't have much respect for acting because I thought, well, they're just, they're just, they're all just posers and fakers, you know? And, and then I started taking acting gigs. I started getting calls to be in movies and, and so on myself. And then I realized, wait a minute, Mako, this is, this is no different than what I do when I get up and play. If, you know, uh, you know if, I'm, if I'm playing Precious Lord or His Eye is on the Sparrow, what's the difference between me playing as a white man Precious Lord, which came out of the spiritual experience, which came out of the fields in Mississippi, where I've never been and never toiled. What's the difference between that and taking an acting role and me being some, you know, biker who goes to the Sturgis Bike Festival, which I've never done either, <laughs> you know? You know, right. I mean, it's, 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 it's not faking, it's embodying it's embodying to the extent that we can because we, we are theatrical people. It doesn't matter if you're Buddy Guy playing the guitar or even, you know, some blues guy from the Mississippi Delta. I mean, it, it, you know, those guys all had a sense of the importance of their relationship. It didn't matter if they were in a roadhouse in Mississippi or if they were playing in a, 
at the Pensacola Civic Center, you know, and, and on a proper stage. There's this importance that, that, that you bestow upon yourself if nobody else. And you say, I'm taking this role right now. I have to own this role and I'm playing my life. Now, um, in some cases, like the old blues guys from the Mississippi Delta who might have spent years in prison or they might have and they might have even been recorded while they were in prison. They're, they're singing their life. They're singing their life. But in the modern age, we don't always get to do that, you know? You know, nobody, nobody disparages Billy Gibbons for playing the blues, for instance. They don't say, well, you haven't spent time in the fields, you know, mm-hmm. working. You didn't come out of slavery. What right? You know, everybody goes like, hey, he's got the right feel. He's got the right feel. He's honoring the tradition. And um, so that that's the that's the that's the the measure is do you respect the emotion and do you respect the feel of it? And uh, you, we try to the extent that we can. And that's what I love about this. I know throughout the course of your life, you've kind of gone in and out of music a couple of times. Tell me about when you decided that you wanted to become a musician. Well, in the course of my life, I have, I have only, in my adult life, I've only veered really, really once. And it was because I was just completely burned out on traveling and touring and I told myself I have to do something else but to answer your question at what point in my life did I realize that I wanted to become a musician I I this is probably going to come a little bit as of a surprise to you but I, I I'm guessing you know I don't know if I've ever really thought about this I, I mean I I, I had my hey I can do that moment when I when I was a kid probably in 1971 or 72 I must have been 72 and the and the kid across the street was blasting for the whole neighborhood Robin Trower's Bridge of Sighs album I don't know if you know that right <laughs> I do know that album it, it's a very bluesy British yeah. interpretation of 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 rock music. And the, and the and I will say this: the older I got, and the more I got into Robin Trower, and even recently, I was super into him when I was a kid. But I want—I'm going to back up and com- finish answering the question. But what I realized about Robin Trower, but more recently, is that he was so influenced by black music, and I'm not talking about blues music so much as I'm talking about funk music, like. James Brown and that sort of thing and and he was doing a ver- he was doing British funk music in a certain way to the extent that he could manifest that with a three-piece rock group so I'm gonna back up when I heard Robin Trower's Bridge of Sighs album I was captivated by the sound of his guitar and the sound of that Stratocaster through the Marshall and the sound of his trio with a very subtle Hammond B3 organ in there mixed in. I was captivated by James Dewar's voice 
who at the time I didn't even know. I thought this guy Robin Trower was singing. I didn't, I thought, you know, yeah. I didn't know they, they meant it to be Robin Trower was the whole group. But I was captivated by the sound of Trower's guitar with that sort of subtle, I don't know if it was a Univox or MXR Phase 90, that sort of out of phase guitar sound that he doubled all the time through the Marshalls. And the drum beat that Reg Isidore was playing at the time, a very simple, simple rock and roll drum set, and, and the beautiful melodic bass lines that James Stewart was playing while he was singing vocally with this wonderful low voice that was akin to Paul Rogers' voice in the group Free and later in Bad Company. And I would, I'd said to myself at that point, I want to do that, not because I wanted to be a rock star. I didn't even know who Robin Trower was. I didn't know he played in arenas. I wanted to, I wanted to have the power of that sound at my fingertips. It was the sound that I wanted to have coming out of me, so to speak. And that's what entranced me about music. How old were you at this point? I was probably 13 or 14, I'm guessing. Okay, but you kind of pursued jazz, learning jazz right after that, did you not? I did. Um, you know, when I, when I was in Jacksonville, Florida, different people referred me to different music teachers and so on. A little bit before that, I went to a more traditional guitar teacher who taught me to read music and that kind of thing. And I don't know, you know, back in those days, you know, Mako, when I first started playing guitar, you would learn, you would learn on songs like The Farmer in the Dell, Old MacDonald, you know, you know, that kind of thing. And you, and you, a kid would ask him or herself, well, how does this, this doesn't sound like anything I'm hearing on the radio. Nowadays, you, you know, you learn how to play what you love. You can go to YouTube and that's how kids are getting so good at such an early age. But we had to find that path for ourselves. And mind you, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix was in his prime when I was just coming into music. I mean, he, Jimi Hendrix, I think he died in 70, but he was, he was still on fire as far as, uh, you know, as far as a brand and, and, and his impact. The Allman Brothers were still going strong. Bands like Free and that kind of thing. And um, so, you know, I, 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 became, I became magnetized by all that was going on. And my, my, my teachers were, I would try to get, my guitar teachers, I, I would try best that I could to get them to teach me the contemporary music of the day. But it really just didn't, didn't work that way. You know, teachers didn't have this ability to say, okay, you want to learn Purple Haze? Well, let me show you Purple Haze. Uh, so somebody said, you know, there's a, a great jazz instructor in town. And um, um, let me think about this, the chronologically, the chronology of it. I, I, th I think the way it happened is I started playing rock and roll in kind of a junior high school, during my junior high school days. And then from the folks I was meeting in the school that I went to, they kind of exposed me to jazz music a little bit. And that opened my mind to jazz music. 
as how it could work into my playing style or work into my life. Other, up, up to that point, I was listening to Neil Young and the Allman Brothers and Grand Funk Railroad and the bands like Free. And then I would listen to bands like Jethro Tull and the new Allman Brothers after Dwayne died. And I would, could hear Chuck Levels kind of interpret, uh, you know, sort of almost Dixieland jazz style interpretation of dealing with the Allman Brothers music. And so the piano player in my band would, became a, he was a jazz fan and opened my mind to it. He told me about this guy named Robert Conti, who was a jazz guitar player in Jacksonville, Florida. He was a transplant from the north in Philadelphia. I got in touch with Bob and as sort of, you know, I think for certain jazz musicians, they, there are extreme, there are extremists in, in all of these, in all of these, uh, in all of these forms of music. There are extremists in folk music, extremists in classical music, extremists in jazz. Right. And Bob was kind of an extremist in jazz who believed that if you can play jazz, you can play anything. And he confused the hell out of me. I have great respect for Robert Conti. Um, to this day, because I learned so much from him, but I do disagree with that foundational belief that if you can play jazz, you can play anything. I, I just don't, I don't think that's the case. But my point is I latched on to that ideology and I started when I was a little bit older, armed with all my fancy jazz chords and understandings of jazz harmony, I tried to play the blues and I tried to play country music and it just wasn't coming out right. Even though, even though, Mako, I came from the South where, you know, bluesy, swampy music came from and country music was, it was, it was coming out of that region. I couldn't play that music. I couldn't play country music. I didn't even want to, to be honest, <laughs> because of the indoctrination that I had had. Right. And there's there. This is something that I I want I want to talk to you about because I don't know if you've ever thought about this or anybody's ever brought this up. When when Southerners in the U.S. the Southern mentality and the Southern it's not even the mentality the Southern demographic historically in the U.S was comprised now i'm talking about white folk here because that's the only folks i'm authorized to talk about okay they were comprised of people who fancied themselves of the aristocracy or people who fancied themselves as the working class now and and that's probably true of the world in general but suffice it to say from the early days and i'm i'm saying i'm i'm proposing that the root of this was in the colonial days in the u.s I grew up and my family never listened to, Mako, we never listened to folk music. We never listened to the music of the people, which I would ascribe to blues, which I would ascribe to spirituals, which I would ascribe to, uh, you know, f actual folk, folk music, like acoustic music, banjos and fiddles and that kind of thing, Appalachian music of that nature. We were... Nobody ever taught me this stuff, Marco. This is just what you learn in, you know, societally. This is just who you end up being in the United States, or at least at the time that I grew up. Sorry, we, can I ask, what yes. were you listening to? 
That's where I was going. Okay. And what, 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 instead of that, we listen to what they call uh, easy listening music or beautiful music, Henry Mancini, James Bond music, John Barry, that kind of stuff. And we would listen, if we, we would occasionally listen to the classical station on, on the public radio station. So, but we would never, ever listen to folk music or music of what I call music of the people. So when I grew up into adulthood, I just did not have this sense of, I want to hear working man songs, like, you know, like Bruce Springsteen and that whole thing. Pete Seeger is like, I couldn't relate to it. My relatives actually were all kind of corporate people. You know, they came from a more... Uh, elevated economic echelon, if you will. So I couldn't relate to that music. But what I'm driving at is when you realize as an artist that you've pegged yourself or other people have pegged you with without you being aware of being pegged in a sense, you, you, you begin to ask yourself, oh my God, I've missed out. So all of this stuff that I've been talking about, these circuitous places that I've, that I've tried to take this conversation, have all, all brought me back to saying, hey, wait a minute, implicitly, almost molecularly, I fancied myself as being one type of guy, this, this aristocrat musically, but that's not what I am. I grew up I grew up on the west side of Jacksonville. I don't know what that would equate to in Toronto. <laughs> but, you know, I just, you know, I was I grew up a working class kid. But yet I was brought up thinking I was something else. And so in the last 10 years of my career or maybe 15, I and actually since I started working with Richie Havens in 2000, I I readjusted and I said, "Wait a minute." This music is really who I am. I've denied who I was. I thought I was I thought I was this British guy who was playing who needed to play rock and roll Robin Trower style. But I grew up listening to I grew up around around not listening to. I grew up around black musicians playing gospel music a cappella style. I grew up around hearing old black men play on their front porches in downtown Jacksonville, Florida, which I was forbidden to interact with. I grew up listening to that. I grew up listening to wonderful music on the radio like Al Green and, like I said earlier, the Staples Singers and, and the Cornelius Brothers and all of this gospel-influenced music. And, and then I asked myself, as of late, meaning the last 20 years, I got some homework to do and I got some going back to do and I got some reverence to play to who I really am. And so that's what I've been doing. Was there a moment where you realized I need to get back to this to study this? Like when you said Richie Havens, but before that, when you were in a band, The, the Nudes, yeah, I mean, that was very much an acoustic thing. Yeah, it was... Which I wouldn't say that it was backcountry, but there was something very folksy about. Well, that was a that was a bridging that was a bridging project in a sense, and you very astutely brought that up. That my group, the Nudes, was somewhat folksy. It was it was it was somewhat classical. 
in the tr- in the yes exactly it was kind of a mix of classical and folk yeah and it was my bridge back into that world but honestly mako in spite of the fact that i was playing folk venues and folk festivals with the group the nudes and my colleague was a cellist and i was an acoustic guitar player at the time i still didn't understand i still didn't embody folk music it was just a place i had to be to put myself in to get heard in that whole genre. And is that, does that come because of your association with Richie Havens or does it come in a different form? No, I, 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 I made an association with Richie Havens through playing in the folk world. In other words, at one point I was touring and traveling and recording with the group The Nudes, which was my group and my music, but we at one point we shared booking agents with Richie Havens. So I got... I got put on a lot of Richie's gigs as his opening act, and that's where I met him. Okay. And that's that's why that association came to be. Tell me about that association. What did that do for you as a musician? What did that do for you as a person to be, to work with Richie for 10 years? Well, hmm. I working with Richie realigned me and it it took my if I could be as honest as possible it took my focus off me and returned my focus to where music comes from and where it belongs which is in the people that you're playing for I mean I, I Richie was so reverent and so aware all the time of his audience and the people that came to see him play and the people who would talk to him. He was so in the moment, Mako. And that was not the way I was. It never was the way I was. I was always like, you know, looking around. If I was having a conversation... I would be like, well, I'm looking around the room going like, hey, that guy over there, I mean, he's, you know, he works for such and such of a booking agency. I really need to talk to him, but I'm talking to Mako right now. It's like, it's a terrible way to be. It's, it's, and I, I had a, I don't know his name, but a, a major journalist who I think was working for Rolling Stone or something actually called me on that one day and I was talking with him and I realized, hey, Okay, you've done me a big favor. You called me on it and not being in the moment and not being reverent to you. And I you know, there are life lessons that that we carry with us forever if people will take the time to give us those lessons. And I learned so much from Richie Havens by watching him dedicate and devote himself to people who he was talking to in that moment and who he was playing for. So that was the main thing. And the other thing I learned about Richie and working with him is the nature of my job and therefore Mako the nature of any job that I do and as I share this story with you I hope that if anybody hears this it might be able to they might enjoy this as a story that can help them with any job that they're doing is I used to be so nervous in my first year or so with Richie we would play the Edmonton Folk Festival, you know, 10, 20,000 people. 
Vancouver, Winnipeg, all of these places, all over the place, and then down in the States, and oh, I'd be so nervous, and I was thinking, oh my God, I'm playing for all these thousands of people, what do I look like, what do I sound like, all this nonsense. And then at one point, and I think I hit, I think this hit me in, in either Calgary or Edmonton, I think it was Calgary, actually. I was so nervous, and I just, I just, slapped myself in the face metaphorically and said, no, no, no. My job is to the left of me. And Richie was always to my left on a stool. And we would be playing, Marco, sometimes for 20, 30,000 people in one, at one moment. Sometimes more if we played in Glastonbury, England or something at the, at the Glastonbury Festival. My job was to Richie. And if I served him, and I served, if I paid attention to the guy at my left... That's the only thing I need to have my mind and my senses on. And everything else took care of itself. And I started listening to my tapes after the shows, after I reoriented myself properly and got myself properly affixed to my North Star. After I could navigate my way through all those issues of what do I look like? What do I sound like? Oh my gosh, it's too cold. I can't play right now. You know, whatever it is. Oh, oh my gosh, the the sound, the concrete. The, I'm on a concrete stage. There's no resonance. It's it's. This is terrible. All that nonsense went out the window when I reoriented myself with the job at hand, and that was the guy that hired me. In other words, I was hired to do a job, and that was look after to look after Richie Havens. And when I figured out that that was the only way to survive in this job and to do my job excellently actually then 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 I would was able to keep the job for another 10 years okay so i get that and that makes total sense to me but how do you apply that to starting your own band to to well, create your own thing what what is your north star then it's a great the, the great it's a fantastic question i mean i i think when 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 the project or the, the goal becomes your own original music rather than serving somebody else's music, as I did with Richie Havens, then the North Star becomes the songs and the feelings and the embodiment of those feelings. If I'm playing a song like the dipstick rag in my, in my, in my Swamp Cabbage material, which is on my first record, that is inspired by Scott Joplin. So if, if I want to deliver that song with the sincerity and truth that I, that I feel every audience deserves to, to hear it delivered as, I have, to, I have to remind myself of that Scott Joplin vibe that sparked the sound in the first place when I'm playing that song. And I also, my other North, North Star is again the audience. I'm there to serve the audience. I'm there to serve the song and the music. And, you know, secondarily I'm kind of there to serve I'm not really serving the other musicians in my band but I'm there to be with them and be present with them right. but I think that stuff takes care of itself if I'm serving the song and the music and the original sentiment of that music and by how can I ever know the original sentiment of a Scott Joplin song right I can't I never lived on Del Mar Street in St. Louis Missouri where Scott grew up but I can be in touch, and I can still use the North Star as, 
as that, ori- as that original moment, as that nascent moment when I wrote that song in the spirit of Scott Joplin. And if I can stay with that original sentiment, that original feeling of when I wrote Dipstick Rag, then I can deliver it with the, with the most honesty possible. I mean, you know, the, it's really quite simple. And there are distractions every freaking gig that I play. There's there's always distractions. Right. And I I remember, you know, I, I just want to take a quick diversion. I, I remember talking with John Wetton. Do you know who John oh, Wetton yeah. was? He yeah, he played with Asia and King UK Crimson. and bands yeah, like yeah. yeah. He was a bass player and a great singer. And I said to John backstage, I opened for him one time and and I said, John, how how was the sound? You know, you played at gar- the garden and arenas all over the world. He goes Something of something in a British accent is like it was always bollocks. The sound is always shit. Something like that. And I'm like, holy jeez. Even at John Wetton's level, playing with Asia and Steve Howe and and Carl Parmel or whoever was the drummer was, yeah. these guys were still still mired in dealing with distractions. So getting back to my world, there's always a distraction. But at the end of the day, my job is to connect and stay connected with the music and the audience. And they will go with you. The audience, it doesn't matter, Mako, if the lights go out, man. If the, if the sound is shit, if, the, if, the, if, the, if, the, if, the, if it's raining, if it's raining, you know, they will go with you if you're willing to go with them and say, hey, y'all are going through this too, but we're going to make the best of this. So I'm curious, you, you get these life lessons, you work with one of the great musicians of his time, Richie Havens. Yeah. Um, your, your band, The Nudes, I believe did quite well, releasing three albums, and I think you were touring yeah, extensively. Yeah, yeah. And then around 98, it falls apart. Yeah. At that point, you decide that you want, You alluded to this before about quitting the music scene, or you were kind of exhausted and burnt out. Yeah. What did leaving music teach you? What was that life like when you became somebody who worked nine to five and you decided I'm going to put the guitar down and not do that at all? Well, the, the best thing I ever did for my music career, if you will, is to stop playing music for a couple of years. And I, I took a job working for the food bank in Nashville, Tennessee, where I was living. I came to Nashville to be a songwriter. Of course, most of the time people are expected or just fall into working in the country music song market. It just wasn't me for different reasons, but that's beside the point. Mm -hmm. To sustain myself and stay alive, I worked a job and I wanted to do something that was in the social services. And I was working different jobs in the food bank. Sometimes I'd be in the warehouse. Sometimes I'd be on the receptionist desk. Sometimes I'd be in the accounting department. Sometimes be, I'd be in the logistics department. But most always I was in some cubicle, you know, except for in the warehouse. I was under a, in a cubicle underneath fluorescent lights. And I would have to deal with the general public coming in every day. A guy with his family would be hungry and they would ask me for help. And what did I, what was I going to do about it? So it's one thing to sing about people in need or to read about it, 
But when somebody comes and looks you in the eye and says, I need food for my family, you have a choice of, well, I'm going to tell them what I can do. Um, I'm going to help them according to protocol. Or if protocol doesn't allow me to help them, I might decide to help them on the side in whatever way I can. So my point is, Seeing humanity in need, skin to skin, eye to eye, really, really changes your perspective as an artist. But for me, artistically, almost more importantly, I started to realize, given the working conditions that I was under, I started to realize what my audience was dealing with on a day-to-day basis and what my family was dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And by that, I mean... I never realized being an artist, I had, I had freedom that I took for granted. I can go to the post office whenever I want. I can go to the doctor's office whenever I want. Right. If I choose to go down and take a walk by the stream and get a little inspiration, I can do that. I work hard, Mako, I, and I've always worked hard. I work, I don't, but I just don't work nine to five. And folks that work that nine to five thing with maybe an hour lunch, they, they endure a, 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 a shackling and a loss of freedom that I never imagined. And I realized, oh my gosh, this is the way my mother and my father and my brother and my aunts and uncles and my grandfather have lived and, and continue to live. And I never bothered or would just never knew what they dealt with. And sometimes on behalf of me, my mother would endure this, these god-awful fluorescent lights. I mean, life could be harder, right? But you, you have a job, and she goes to these cubicles every day to put me through school or whatever for years. So I understood my family, and I understood my audience. And the essence of what I'm saying, Mako, is when I finally took a regular job, I realized why people need what I do so much. Because they need a break from that life. They need a break from the regularity and the monotony of their life. They need to feel like they can have a little freedom. They can have some choices over their lives. And I think that's what art does. It gives us a little bit of hope that we can maybe change our scenario. Because art triggers our imagination. And you can't change your scenario if you can't imagine a way out of it. So, I mean, I don't want to go down a preaching road again. I've been doing a lot of that in, this, in, this, in our time together. But I think, I think the time that I took away from music for two years helped me so much because I understood what my audience needed music for. And I understood what my family needed music for and why they need entertainment. And therefore, I understood my role in a more clear way, my role in the big picture societally and that my role was not just to find my own truth or all these sort of altruistic things my role was to help and serve society in a way how did it change you as a musician well i i i I, my shift in orientation if you will changed me 
to not fussing with musical details as much. I didn't care as much about how my hand was positioned when I played the guitar. What I cared about was, can the note that I'm playing, regardless of how I position my hand, can it make that lady over there dance? Can it make that lady over there kind of go, okay, he's got the groove, you know? Affecting people and connecting with people was my, that was my currency. Not all of this garbage about process and protocol of how things needed to be done. It was just that they be done, you know? And I really realized, Marco, you made, you're, you made me aware of something that I just stepped into my own rabbit hole here. Because when I started this interview with you, I started talking about when I was a kid and I realized that the process and the concept of grace and how I played a note was important and how that gave me a, a certain power. <laughs> so now I'm saying, after all these years, I'm, that I realize the only thing that's important is that I play the damn note. But it's still, you know, I, I realize that there, there is an option you know, of, of, it's, it's not, it, it's not really that you play the note gracefully. It's that you connect with the note. And when I was a sixth grader in my room all by myself, I could never have known that. I didn't know what connection with an audience was all about. Right. I, I hope that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it makes sense. total sense. I, I wonder, um, during that time, did you listen to music? Did you play your guitar at all? Or what, did you not touching music at all are you saying when i was younger no no sorry when you were when you decided to walk away from the music business or being a musician right yeah um i that's an excellent question i i the only music that i really listened to when i took a break from music and, and i have to say it was that period was the first time in my life when I was really, when I could ever really say that I was depressed. I could not have, I could not offer an explanation, Mako, for why I simply couldn't bear to perform or why I couldn't bear to pick up the phone and hustle myself to say, hey, I'm Walter Parks, I'd love to play at your venue. I just had inexplicably had no ability or desire to do that. Did I love playing the guitar? Yeah, I played it in my apartment or whatever. But, um, you know, so the music that I listened to at that time was music that I was employed to listen to. (laughs) In the interest of surviving in Nashville, I would go around town and, and post these notices on telephone poles. I will record your band for $500, for instance. And I had some good recording gear. And every now and then some contradance band or some, you know, bluegrass band would call me and I would go and have to listen to their music <laughs> just, you know, just to make a dollar. And I really don't like bluegrass music, really, you know. I mean, it's just not, it's not my thing. But it, I started to get exposed to all of this music. And a lot of it was in rural Tennessee and, north, and northwest Georgia. It was kind of wonderful in a way. Okay, so but that's who I listen to. So does so so does this take you into the Oki Fonoki um, project that you you kind of 
I, no, I guess I guess the other question is: you initially said you weren't really connecting with the blues, the country music, but somewhere along the way, that connection happened, right? And that connection led you to study deeper, yeah, um, the hollowers and well, and you know, it's I I am I'm, I'm enjoying talking with you and and listening to you because you you've inspired me to find a a little. You're connecting my dots for me. And I never quite realized that by having to survive in Nashville, which I did through recording other bands, which I did through recording mostly bluegrass and contradance bands, I think opened my mind and my heart to folk music, Southern folk music. And in a way that I had I'd never been opened. And so... When, so when the time came, fast forward to after having played 10 years with Richie Havens, when Richie finally retired and then passed away, it was a continental shelf for me. I'm, like, I, I'm, I, I'm asking myself, what the hell do I do now? You know, I had all my eggs in Richie Havens' basket. That was my gig. I was working every week with that. Right. And in order to keep that gig, I was turning down other gigs. So my world was kind of closed off. And I said, you know, I, I've got to go back to, I've got to figure out, well, who, who am I? What are, what are my roots? What can I offer the world that maybe nobody else can? And I just, I just thought about where did I used to spend time? You know, what influenced me? What maybe made me the artist that I was? And I just started, I, I recalled camping out in the Okefenokee Swamp when I was a kid. And I mean, Marco, this was a hunch. I just went on a, this is, I was operating on a hunch, but much like what happened to me in Nashville when I moved there, in the interest of survival, that was survival for money. Now, 10 years, 10 years later, when Richie is gone, I'm trying to survive artistically. I'm trying to say, what is it that I can do that maybe nobody else can do? What is, what is in my experience line that maybe nobody else has had. I used to camp out in the Okefenokee Swamp. Not many people can say that they've done that. I used to walk around out there and see all these railroad tracks and old rusted machinery, and I wondered, hey, there must have been a ton load of people out here. Were they ever listening to music? Were they ever playing music? And sure enough, I found some of it in the, in the Library of Congress in the United States. A small trove of music. And I'm like, well, what is this? And, I'm, and I even kind of laughed at myself with my inner voice. I'm like, give me a break. Music in the Okefenokee Swamp? What, what is it? Swamp music? Are, that reminds me of Doug Kershaw and, and Acadian music that came down from your neck of the woods down to, uh, you know, Louisiana. Louisiana yeah. I'm like, you know, there's no... I, we never thought, coming from where I, I grew up, we never thought of the swamp as, as being... You never associated music with the Okefenokee Swamp. You just never did. Nobody does in Northeast Florida, Southeast Georgia. Nobody, I mean, nobody you just don't. You think of the, when you think of the swamp, you think of alligators and you think of, of uh, you know, water moccasins and cypress trees and canoes and stuff. Now, when you think of the swamp in New Orleans, yeah, you might think of Cajuns, you know? You might think of Cajun music. Or Zydeco music, you know? Yeah. But you don't think of that regarding Southeast Georgia. It's because nobody had really ever 
come upon this little trove of music since it had been put in the Library of Congress in the early 40s. And I'm like, wait a minute. Am I on to something here? Now, I want to be really clear that there was not really a specific genre of music that came out of the Okefenokee Swamp. I will be completely candid in saying that I think there was an Okefenokee sound or an Okefenokee interpretation. And that's what I've heard when I listen to the tapes. But the music was either Appalachian in nature, which came down again from, from, from Acadian and also came through the Appalachian Mountains in Philadelphia, North Carolina, uh, 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 West Virginia, and all of those places came all the way down. There were also hymns and, and what they call shape note singing, which was a, a, a sacred harp singing. It was four note, four note parts that people in groups of four would sing, and that was religious music. That was not the kind of gather for the Sunday frolic kind of music that, that the Appalachian music was. And the third type of music were, were hollers, they maybe have hollers up in the Laurentian Mountains or something around where Ile d'Orléans is. I'm not sure. Right. Probably do. But the hollers are kind of endemic to the Appalachian Mountains, and they come from Scotland and all of that area. So I found tapes of these people singing hollers and playing reels and Appalachian-style music in a way that I had never heard before. And so I thought, well, maybe I'm on to something here. And I started writing this music out, and it led to a whole new adventure for me. So for those who want to find out more about it, you have this amazing videotape on your website that I believe, I don't know if you did it for the Library of Congress, but you talk about it, and you also play examples um, on your banjo, on your guitar, whatever. And it's, it's, it's a yeah. really interesting piece of video that I think people should check out if they want to find out more about this music. Yeah, the Library of Congress, the American Folkways, uh, the American Folklife Collection found out that I was doing this research on the music that was made in Southeast Georgia's Okefenokee Swamp. It's a 600 square mile swamp. And there there was this type of music that was made out there, hollers, reels, Appalachian nature, and shape note singing. And they asked me to do a 30-minute special on my research and my interpretation of the music that, that I found in the Library of Congress that had been recorded in the early 1940s. So I have taken that music, and in some cases, on an old 1929 banjo, I've tried to do it authentically. Mm-hmm. You know, on the front porch of an old homestead in the Okefenokee. And then I reinterpret it and follow up immediately with an electric guitar, an old Guild guitar from 1967, as raunchy and swampy and bluesy. And I play that same banjo riff on an, on an electric guitar and show how it's been, um, hopefully, to give it new life. But the uh, Library of Congress invited me to uh, to share my research on the music that was made out in the Okefenokee Swamp, the hollers, the reels, and the shape note singing. I'm very proud of that piece. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece, and I think it's well worth checking out. Um, I'm going to have to wrap this up, but I do want to talk about your latest project, which are 
I guess, gospels and spiritual music? Yes. Uh, yeah, they, my band is called the Unlawful Assembly. Uh, Walter Parks and the Unlawful Assembly. And Unlawful Assembly was the legal charge that the folks were uh, detained under or arrested under, in most cases, in Selma, Alabama, when a group of black folks tried um, to uh, exercise their right to vote. They gathered in front of the courthouse, and they were told to they, they could not be there, and they were, uh, they, they were not allowed to vote for different reasons, and they, they staged a, a very peaceful protest um, against those, those arrest, uh, arresting measures, and they were uh, arrested on the grounds of unlawful assembly. One thing led to the other, and there was a march on, on, on uh, Montgomery from Selma, so I thought that would be an apt name for my project, wherein we take old spirituals that used to be called Negro spirituals. They, uh, they, when the slaves started converting to Christianity and when African music started mixing with some of those Christian hymns, it became what we now know as spirituals. And if you say to a white person in the South, even nowadays, especially if it's an older person, let's sing some spirituals. You know, I'm sure there's this bristling deep down as, oh my God, I don't want to play that that black music, you know? Right. Let's sing a Christian hymn instead. Well, again, the the voyage might be different. But the destination is the same, is peace, tranquility, survival, and the desire for love and maybe some other things. But so I'm taking old spirituals, old field hollers, old prison work songs, and trying to rearrange them and give them a contemporary new life, if you will. And part of the reason is that along the path of playing this music, I'm also sharing some of the stories behind it. We take one of the songs called Early in the Morning, for instance, that was recorded by Alan Lomax in the late 30s. Early in the Morning was a song that started in the convict leasing days. And if you say down south, you'd say to somebody, do you know what convict leasing was? People are like, no, I don't, never heard of that. Well, these guys, black men, were often, probably most of the time, unfairly imprisoned because there was a, a thriving business wherein the, the state governments of the South would, would lease out their prisoners to corporations, to, to road building companies, to timber companies, to railroad companies. So can you imagine the incentive to keep black men behind bars if, if your state government is going to make a bunch of money? Uh, I mean, it was a tremendous business. And they would, so in, in, in trying to get through their day and let the time pass as quickly as it possibly could amid the misery, these guys would sing songs out in the fields. And also, it was important that they sing chants or work songs 
to keep themselves all in time and slinging their tools at the same time. So they would hit a piece of rail or move the rail at the same time. So my point is, Mako, is when I introduce this song, by playing the song, I feel like it's important to introduce it and tell people where the song came from. And a lot of times I'd be surprised, even people my age, I'm 62, they don't even know about convict leasing. There's so many, what I'm realizing as an American, there's so many stories of our history and how this country came. To, I, I love this country and all of that, but the story of how we came to be, of how we all have our own little pieces of land is sometimes a very dark story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're all, I'm, I'm, as dark as it may be, the irony of it is, is that this music gave rise and it spawned and inspired some wonderful music. Stevie Wonder, you know? <laughs> I mean, we could go on and on, you know? It just James Brown. I mean, I'm going to take a liberty and even say bands, British bands like Robin Trower, Cream, The Who, you know, on and on. My, po- my point is, from the darkness and the toil and the suffering... This the music that came out of that has all brought us together. Because I'm sorry if you hear Al Green saying "Let's stay together," doesn't matter if you're black or white or Asian or whatever. You just want to you want to stay together, you know. You know. <laughs> have and, you had you know? And, have you had a chance to perform this as a a concert piece? The album we have uh, we have uh, we have not, and so we we have only um, kind of performed it in its. When I was first kind of rough drafting the concept uh, over the last couple of years before the COVID, but the band wasn't the same. And the band that has that is on the recording has never played live, but we are going to do our first record, our first performance in New York coming up. Oh, uh, wow. And uh, so I, I don't know when your show is going to air. I'll just go ahead and say it in case it airs beforehand. But we're playing uh, September 17th in New York City at the Cutting Room. And the, 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 uh, the, the production is called Walter Parks, which is my, myself, and The Unlawful Assembly. We're also playing one other gig um, in, in the area the night before, September 16th, in the, in the Berkshires, which is a little closer to you, but still pretty far away. And that's in western Massachusetts. And... Uh, a town called Egermont, nice. uh, near Great Barrington. Okay, so and they were presenting this as the album, and then stories in between, talking about each of the songs and right. its history. I, I, it's very important to me that when I play a song like "Follow the Drinking Gourd," which is the concept of a slave keeping his or her eye on the North Star, that, that the drinking gourd is the metaphor for the Big Dipper. I, I, I tell a story that kind of brings all that metaphor into um, clarity, if you will, before I play the song. So uh, we've got a a lot of great spirituals, classic spirituals, Amazing Grace, which is really a hymn. And Um, and I think one of the greatest songs ever written. And the story behind that is unbelievable. It is. And you know what's ironic about it is... You know, Marco, for years, as a kid, I would sing Amazing Grace. And you sing to yourself, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
You know, as a kid, you sing, that saved a wretch like me. How many times have you sung, that saved a wretch like me? And how many times did it take it for you to, did, it, did, it, did you sing those words before you go like, those are horrible lyrics. Like what? What? What the hell? I'm saying I'm singing that I'm a wretch, and then you start to go like, well, well, wait a minute. What's the song about? And then when you find out what the song about is that it was written by a slave trader who, in a redemptive moment, said, "I'm a wretch. I am a wretch," and and this moment of redemption has saved me. Then you realize, oh, these you realize what the lyrics mean, but. Just like the stories of the foundations of the United States and even Canada, you know, you guys are dealing with it with the native Canadians mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, you've you got, the, not the same issues, but, you know. We have issues. We're all coming, all, all of, yeah, all of these issues are coming, uh, are coming due <laughs> and we're, we're having to deal with them. And, uh, but, you know, we have to ask ourselves, well, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? And... My job is to just try to bring together people of all walks. And, and I'm doing it through the device, if you will, of this wonderful music that came from some really dark periods. And I, I'm sad to say that, but the good news is that it does make us happy. Well, and you do it well. I've been really, been really enjoying thank what you. I've seen. Walter, thank you thank so you. much for doing this. I really appreciate getting, to, getting a chance to speak to you and getting to know you a bit. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure.